everyone, I'm Dr. Susie Green, the founder and CEO of the Positivity Institute, and welcome to my new podcast, Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. I'll be chatting to both academics and practitioners who are working in the evolving field of positive psychology coaching. We'll be looking at the interplay between the complementary fields of positive psychology and coaching psychology within an evidence-based coaching context. I'm hoping to equip practitioners with both knowledge and skills, and most importantly, have a positive impact on their way of being as positive psychology coaches. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Jonathan Passmore. Jonathan is Senior Vice President at Coach Hub and a professor at Henley Business School, as well as a global thought leader in behavioral change. He's listed in the Thinkers 50 and Global Gurus lists. He's a chartered psychologist, holds five degrees, including an MBA and doctorate in psychology. He is an accredited coach with the ICF and EMCC, as well as holding qualifications in team coach and coach supervision. He has published widely and contributed over 30 books and nearly 200 scientific papers and book chapters to the field, making him one of the most published coaches in the world. His recent books include Becoming a Coach, The Essential ICF Guide, The Coach's Handbook, and Coach Me, Your Personal Board of Directors. Over the past two decades, Jonathan has worked as an executive coach, consultant, and educator with hundreds of leaders and managers, from senior politicians to board directors, helping them become the best version of themselves. Well, welcome, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here, Susie. Wonderful to have you. So can we start off with a little bit of positive reminiscing, which is uh, definitely a strategy in the world of positive psychology. And I think we've determined that we met perhaps back in 2009 or 2008, possibly in in London. Indeed. Uh, So you kindly came across to speak in an event that I was organising at the University of East London, a coaching conference that formed part of our program at that university where we had a coaching psychology and a coaching master's program, the first coaching psychology program in the UK. And I had joined East London from working in a consultancy company where I had started a PhD in coaching and was progressing through that. The university then said, hey, we're thinking of setting up a program. Why don't you, as you're doing your PhD, come and help us set up the program? So we set up the program. And then as part of that, we organized the conference you kindly came across. Sir John Whitmore was at that event. And uh, I think Jim Knight also came to that event. And 500 coaching students, coaching practitioners, HR people came along to hear you with your thoughts about positive psychology, about coaching, and with a particular focus on education and the application of coaching in educational environments. Absolutely. So you're certainly a pioneer in this field, Jonathan. And when I think about my journey through the field of coaching psychology in my career, of course, it was uh, Tony Grant and Michael Kavanagh that I first met back in 2001 when I started my doctorate. And then Stephen Palmer, I was introduced to Professor Stephen Palmer, and then you were the next person that I was introduced to. And of course, I've met so many other people through my connections, particularly in the UK, where, as you've rightly acknowledged, that coaching psychology has been there for a very long time, actually, hasn't it? So I think 
we probably set that course up in about 2006, seven were the first years that that program run and has grown to be an incredibly popular program at the University of East London. And my involvement with some of those individuals that you've just named really goes back to the very early 2000s. So conversations with Stephen Palmer in, I think, 2001, while I was at IBM. I remember going on a short course that Stephen had organized through his Center for Coaching I think that that was in 2001. And Stephen at that program mentioned that he was going to try and bring psychologists together because what could psychologists offer the world of coaching? I think he'd had conversations with Tony. Tony had been working on his thesis and been also putting forward at Sydney uh, a coaching psychology program. And Stephen thought this is something that we could bring in the UK, psychologists to make a contribution to. And there was Alison Wybrow. Pauline Willis, I recall, Ho Law, Stephen and myself and a number of others who came together to have an initial conversation. And that led to an event, I think in the summer of 2001, maybe this was July, that I hosted at IBM's offices in South Bank, which was probably the first event for the Coaching Psychology Forum connected to the British Psychological Society. And from there, Uh, With Stephen's leadership, that group turned into a special group and really grew to about two and a half thousand members. So incredible interest for psychology. And that has then spun out from that into a variety of different university programs in the UK. But it's also spilling through Stephen and mine and Ho's and Alison's work uh, with different academic institutions and different colleagues to a whole field of coaching psychology that's emerged with the work that Sydney and Tony and Michael particularly were doing in Australia, you know, forging the pathways forward. There's some great work happening really in many other academic institutions that have have grown up over the 20 years that followed those initial forays into the world of coaching, positive psychology and coaching psychology, which are all, I suppose, in some respects, sister disciplines. Yes, exactly. So it's really has spread across the globe, hasn't it? And continues to spread. Uh, Although I still meet a lot of coaches that haven't heard of coaching psychology. And I recently gave a keynote at the ICF Italia conference and I asked the audience who had heard of coaching psychology and I would say less than a quarter put their hands up. So I I find that still really interesting that given coaching is such a huge industry globally, uh, that there's still opportunity, I think, for education around coaching psychology. I absolutely agree with you. And I think maybe this is one of the critiques that we could make of professional training in its early years. And I would say maybe the first 20 plus years of coach education um, has been lacking in the academic rigor and has focused very much on practitioner skills and maybe too overtly on what were judged to be the competencies Mm. that coaches needed. And often those competencies, certainly in the early days, and even now we might raise questions about them, but in the very early days, those competencies emerged from a small handful of professionals who came together and said, oh, this is what we do in our practice. So that must be right. And that laid the foundations of those competences. Uh, And of course, 
open questions, summaries, reflections, affirmations are important skills. And the importance of contracting and ethics and a mindset are useful aspects that underpin our practice. But I think that psychology has a lot more to offer in that regard. And when we look at coach training, particularly the Ma and Pa schools of coach training that have emerged from some of those professional bodies, very small schools providing a focus on an individual model, sometimes a model developed by that particular school with no reference to the wider world of psychology, not informed by the research literature, either before or that's been emerging in that period from 2000 to, to where we are today. And so it's not surprising that many coaches have walked away with a single model yes. focused almost exclusively on the competences, haven't been encouraged to read or think about psychology, positive psychology, research evidence, the connections with other disciplines, either in human resources. So the role of feedback and the psychology around that, the contribution that psychometrics can make, or even what does counselling have to offer uh, mm -hmm. as a sister discipline to the work that we might be doing in coaching. So those individuals have existed, have developed in a, in a bubble. And it's not surprising then that they've not had exposure to this wider field that many of us have had the fortune to be involved with and contribute to. And I think one thing that I am hopeful that we will see change as we move forward through the 2020s and beyond is a shift from small commercial providers of coach education towards academic institutions providing them and a greater focus, secondly, by those professional bodies on looking at research evidence and making the connections between the professional practice and research evidence. So competences are clearly linked to evidence that that particular competence has an impact, has value. And thirdly, that we really instill in our profession the importance of continuous professional development. The coach learning doesn't stop when you become an ACC or a PCC or a practitioner or a senior practitioner with the EMCC. That instead, that's almost just like your driving license. You've got the permission to get onto the road to start working with clients, but actually the learning continues and it continues every day. It continues through supervision, reflective practice, journaling, engaging in other courses to broaden and widen the models and frameworks that you use. And it continues through our reading and engagement with research because coaching is going to be a best service to our world, to individuals, when we collectively as a community keep pushing the boundaries, keep yeah. understanding more about it, and then pushing that evidence and science back into the work that we do so we get better and better and better in the aid of the organisations and the individuals that we serve. Absolutely. Well said. I have uh, over the years uh, recommended to a number of coaches uh, that they potentially consider doing the Masters of Coaching Psychology at Sydney Uni. And I've had the opportunity then to hear from them to say how glad they were that they, they actually did the course. I mean, in some cases, they've been coaching for quite a while and were quite senior coaches non-psychology uh, backgrounds, typically coming out as, you know, ex-CEOs or MDs and wanting to move into coaching. But I remember a few of them saying to me, I think I was doing a pretty good job, but 
having now the knowledge of underpinning theories and behavioral science, it's just given me so much more, yeah, breadth and depth. And uh, I feel much more confident in my evidence-based approaches now. So I think it's a wonderful thing to keep investing in that, as you said, ongoing professional development. There's a couple of things I wanted to talk to you about because I know you've been uh, driving in, in many ways, I believe, the recent creation of the Division of Coaching Psychology in the British Psychological Society. Because here in Australia, as you, you may very well know the history, is that we set up an interest group in the Australian Psychological Society, I think fairly quickly. It might have been 2002 from memory. I was still doing my doctorate at the time. And uh, when that interest group set up, there was a flurry of interest and excitement. And I think at some point, it was the largest interest group in the Australian Psychological Society amongst maybe 50 different interest groups. And there was quite a lot of, I guess, rigorous discussion about whether we should progress to, we call them colleges here in, in Australia. And the decision was made that no, it was all, I think, all too hard a problem at the time. But that was quite early on, maybe 2009 or 10, and it was sort of abandoned. So I'd love to hear, like, how has this happened? And what do you see are the benefits of it, not just for coaching psychologists, but for coaching yeah, more broadly? Well, that's a very big and difficult question, Susie. <laughs> um, so I'm uh, usually when you come on interview podcasts, <laughs> the questions are straightforward. And this is complicated because there's a long history. I'll take right. a little of that long history. It's complicated because it's highly politicized. Right. And it's complicated because that political, small p political uh, developmental history leads to different perspectives. And I have one perspective um, that I will talk a little bit about. Yeah. And I would say that that journey hasn't finished yet, but it has been a very difficult, stressful, challenging journey that has left individuals along the wayside in that 20 years to get to a division where we are now. Right. And that still isn't the end of the journey. So just reversing really to the beginning and Stephen's creation invitation for some of us to come together who had been on uh, his Centre for Coaching programs, that group of people met, formed a committee as a forum of members of the British Psychological Society, created a special group, the special group then collaborated with Australia. There was the creation of a couple of journals, so The Coaching Psychologist and the International Coaching Psychology Review. The group organized events, grew to around about 2,500 members very quickly, largest special group that was in the British Psychological Society, lots of strong interest. And always when we were starting out, the conversation at the forum was, if there's interest, then this should be a division. And somewhere in the region, and I, I wouldn't want anybody listening to this podcast in mm. three or five or 10 years time saying, ah, this is definitive, but around about 2005 or so, maybe 2006 or seven, a group who were involved with the special group put together an application, engaged with the BPS to journey from being the special group to being a division. That was pushed back. And that led to us on the committee, and I wasn't involved in that initial application, certainly being disappointed. And there was a sense that a little bit too early, come back and talk to us in a while. What, you know, is this just the froth of the early couple of years of, of you forming? So that, okay, 
let's do some more work. Let's build more of the academic uh, research in this area. Let's see whether there's a sustained interest over a period of time. And then sometime around the 2009, 10, 11, another application or discussion with the BPS uh, happened. And once again, that was pushed back. And generally, the British Psychological Society was very close to the idea of creating new divisions. The British Psychological Society, in my opinion, had a whole host of internal political issues that meant it was very hard for it to move away from a structure that it had created, maybe in the fear that this was going to lead to a number of other special groups coming forward. And while one comes forward, it's got two and a half thousand members, what's the cutoff? Is it a thousand members? Well, we've got 1,100 or no, is it? And so there was possibly some fear around this and also a lack of agreement about what impact coaching psychology might have on other divisions. So would that steal members from the occupational psychologists? Would this steal members from sports or, or from counselling? Yeah, because it crosses Is coaching really a separate discipline? Exactly. All of these things came forward and, and nothing happened. It was once again rejected. And then there were further conversations that led to a number of individuals involved with the special group saying, do you know what? This isn't going anywhere. We want to be more collaborative. We want to be more international. We want to be more engaging across the world to take forward this discipline uh, and led to the formation of the International Society for Coaching Psychology. And that was more international, it was more inclusive, it was more collaborative, but it didn't have its base within a particular geographical territory and for the British Psychological Society was recognised a psychologist by the British government and the regulatory authorities in the United Kingdom for individuals to practice as a licensed psychologist. I continued with the BPS in the belief that in the long run, the wave that throws itself against the cliff <laughs> will destroy the cliff. So persistence has got to be one of your top strengths for sure and hope. I would, I'm doing a bit of strength spotting here, Jonathan. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I was optimistic hopeful maybe there was an expectation that there would happen but there was a belief that if we continued to do the research we continued to talk to the bps to push to lobby to be political to build relationships with key stakeholders in the bps in time there would be a gradual movement of change and 10 years later after a change in the chief executive of BPS, changes in presidents, a number of individuals on the British Psychological Society Council who would build relationships with. Gradually, that alliance of individuals came to accept the argument that this could be something that could move forward within the BPS's structures. And the journey then really embarked in a serious way. And over the course of two years, that led to the development of a set of standards and an approval by the society and then by members of the special group to create a new division. Well done. That was an incredible moment. Absolutely. So I'm super excited that we had achieved that outcome and many people, many people were involved in that process. And those individuals are owed by the whole global community of coaching society a, a, a debt of thanks for the work that they did some at a level of detail some being supporters within the british psychological society some just being willing being open to having the conversation that allowed this to start moving forward i guess that that process how hasn't stopped 
So one of the challenges that has been a serious issue and remains a serious issue for, as we, uh, we're moving forward in, in early 2023 is the process of conversion from being a member of the special group to being a chartered coaching psychologist. And questions that I've raised when I was the chair and I've now stepped back from being the chair was because the cost was very high. So we've got two and a half thousand members approximately in the special group. If you create a new division, you might expect around about half of those already chartered psychologists because they're already involved in the special group. And many of them have been involved in that special group for a decade or more. The, the vast majority of those people would then transition across right. to being coaching psychologists. So in my mind, I'd said by the end of the first year, let's aim for a target of 50 percent of the special group members becoming chartered coaching psychologists. But we should see that a test for that, if we haven't got more than 20%, then there's there's an issue with our processes. Mm. One of the issues was cost, and the other process was that the process to move across was more complex than it has been for any other new division that has been created, or any merger of two divisions, or a special group, or an interest group, joining together with a division. So the outcome a year or more later is that we have less than 5% of individuals who have made that journey and new applicants from university programs. So we're talking about less than 100 people who have become coaching psychologists who are chartered. And the argument has been put forward to the BPS that let's have a look at those processes Yep. Maybe it isn't working to be as inclusive as we want to be. It isn't attractive for people who are doing courses at places like Henley, at Ashridge, at Oxford Brooks, at the University of East London. So there's yep. a whole plethora of students. Yes. Hundreds of students a year who are completing programs. But those individuals, in the main, are not applying to the BPS to become members. So the wall is too high for people to spend the money or to make the effort to climb over that wall, despite them having the effort and energy to complete a master's degree. Yes, exactly. And what we need to do is to lower the wall, not to a point where everybody's included, so it has no value as a chartership, but the wall is low enough to be inclusive and to encourage students on psychology programs, coaching psychology programs, the majority of them to apply, and also that the majority of special group members think that this is going to be valuable to me, that I'm going to invest my money, my energy, and my time to climb over the wall and become not just a chartered occupational psychologist, but also a chartered coaching psychologist, or not just a chartered counselling psychologist, but a coaching one as well. And so far, that test that I set mm. hasn't been met, and we still need as a community to continue to engage with the BPS and with other colleagues across the society to make a change to lower the wall, to be more inclusive and to be more attractive to those people who are completing master's programs to then join the society and make the society an active and vibrant community of coaching psychologists that is a beacon for others across the world to follow. And then it can collaborate with Australia, with New Zealand, with South Africa, with Sweden, with Hungary, where the society and we as a group have contacts, all of whom are interested 
in yes. the work that the BPS has done, but can see how that work has currently unfolded and raise the questions themselves. Is it worth us doing that? Exactly. So you were all watching with bated breath and it sounds like we need to watch this space, Jonathan. It would be good to hear from you. What do you see is the benefit or the potential implications then for the coaching industry more broadly by having, uh, I guess, a division of coaching psychology? So I'm sure in the long term that those issues will be overcome. There are really good people at the British Psychological Society. There are fabulous people who are involved as volunteers in the division smart people who will recognize over time that we want to be more inclusive and I'm sure we'll find the mechanisms to enable those changes to happen. So I'm confident that over time, it might take us two or three years, it might take us 32 years, let's see, but in time that will happen. I think the second thing that coaching psychology does and the creation of division solidifies is that it enhances the importance of evidence-based coaching. And Tony was one of the leaders to continually talking about we need to have a field that's evidence-based. At the moment, coaching is still a diaspora of diverse, different, provocative approaches, some of which, positive psychology being one of those, which is highly evidence-based. Others that people have made up yesterday morning uh, (laughs) because they think, well, wouldn't this be a nice thing to go and do? We have no evidence. People might like it, but it doesn't mean to say that it might be, be good or useful or contribute to individuals' change or well-being. And so I think that having programs and particularly a division will continue to shift the direction towards evidence-based practice. And I think the third thing that I think that this does is that it provides a greater opportunity for coaching psychologists to collaborate as equals with members of other professional bodies, such as the ICF and the EMCC, because I think psychologists have a huge amount to offer. Of course, other practitioners and more practitioner-focused qualifications, ICF and EMCC, uh, enable individuals to practice. But I think what psychology does is add a layer on top of that practice to provide, if you like, the advanced driving test, the advanced driver standard that allows people not just to drive the car effectively and safely, but also allows people to be able to hold in their mind, why am I doing this? What's the theory and the research evidence that underpins my practice at this specific moment? Or to conceptualize their case to allow them to then make choices in a more evidence-based way to help their clients. Here, here. And so, Jonathan, this podcast is really based on my sweet spot, I guess, which is that integration between positive psychology and coaching psychology. And I do happen to have a copy of, of We Coach here as well, which is a fantastic resource, which I was asked to, to consider one of the, I guess, strategies that's very uh, popular in my work as a coach and also as a workshop facilitator, I would say. And I uh, shared with you the Secret admirer, which or my students at Sydney Uni, Uni used to call it the stalker task, which which isn't very positive psychology. So uh, I called it the secret admirer in your book. <laughs> I didn't want to get in trouble, and but it really is a strength spotting task. But you yourself have also 
clearly been trying to bridge the gap between positive psychology and coaching psychology for a very long time. And in my preparation for my keynote on the use of gratitude in coaching for the ICF Italy last year, I came across one of your papers with Lindsay Odes, who was my doctoral supervisor on, well, I think it was one of the first published coaching, and there's hardly anything, Jonathan, that I could find uh, on coaching, gratitude in in an evidence-based coaching context. And I know it wasn't a long article, but you certainly put your foot in, Lindsay and and yourself put the foot in the ground there. What has been your experience in that integration or the usefulness of positive psychological science in an evidence-based coaching context? Well, I would see positive psychology and coaching psychology as being sisters. They are disciplines that have grown up together, that inform each other. And in some respects, coaching psychology lives out many of the theories that positive psychology has developed over its 20 or more year uh, historical development. And coaching psychology has, like positive psychology, has its roots in that humanistic tradition. Right. From the 1950s and 1960s. Coaching very much relies upon the relationship. Without the relationship, we can't move on to do the work that we need to do with clients. And when we get on to do the work, hope, gratitude, and a range of other theoretical ideas can be played out in our coaching relationships to enable clients to develop insights and develop actions to move on. And one of the things that I have been most interested in is that interplay between theory and practice. I'm critical of practitioners in that they don't look too much towards evidence. Mm. And I have a similar criticism of academics who don't think about practice. That's right. For me, the real world exists when these aspects come together and that science is only an evidence and psychology and research are only a value when they hit the road of practice But practice also needs to be drawing upon that research evidence. So I've tried to bring those elements together in my own work and in particularly in my writing. So rather than writing theoretical tracks, I've tried to go for practice-based tracks. And the other thing that has underpinned a lot of my work is a belief that while I might have something to contribute, there are many other voices and there is value in a solo performer but how beautiful it is to listen to a choir and to provide opportunities for many voices to sing. And so a lot of my books have been collaborative efforts that enable Lindsay and Tony and Michael and all of those fabulous people to just like, well, here's my contribution. And together in that collected books, I think that that provides a lot for students so you can hear the individual voice, but as you read the whole book, you hear the choir. and that choir, I think, can help individuals to make more progress and provides that depth of knowledge and perspective that contributes towards a practitioner application of ideas. And you just showed at the uh, We Coach book, and that was a COVID lockdown project (laughs) that we had at Henley. We Coach, we drew together students from Henley and our wider family of connection of academics and and practitioners from across the world and said, write a coaching tool for us and we'll put them together into one book. We had 202 tools that people submitted. We thought, wouldn't it be beautiful if we turned this into a coffee table book, a little bit like a recipe book, 
Yes. So we've got colour photos. Beautiful. It's got a step-by-step guide. And we really took that vision and played it out. The book sold out, which is fantastic. Ah. So it's now only available as, as two paperbacks called Coaching Tools We Coach Volume 1 and Coaching Tools uh, We Coach Volume 2. So people can buy the paperback versions of those in two different volumes. And that has sold so well that Volume 3 is coming out in summer. So if you'd like to write another tool, <laughs> happily we would, we would love that Susie to come and join us we've got up to about 90 so far so we're in the home straight of putting the last few tools together for another 101 tools in volume three and I think we'll call it a day of that amazing but there are so many positive psychological strategies contained in the book so I highly recommend this book to the positive psychology coaches that are listening into this podcast given that you have been integrally involved in what's being now recognised as the democratisation of coaching. And I'm very honoured to be sitting on the Science Advisory Council for Coach Hub, of which you lead. And we just had a meeting this week and I came off that meeting and just went, wow, like that's my second meeting. The most incredible researchers and practitioners and minds in the field of, of coaching. But One of the many reasons why I agreed to come on board was I'd always from the very beginning had hoped to see coaching go more widespread than just leadership or executive coaching with my doctorate being originally on personal and and life coaching. And what would you say, what are your hopes for the the democratisation of coaching over the next coming years? Well, coaching is both a really simple intervention and we as humans, in my view, have been coaching our colleagues, our friends, our family, our hunting and uh, gathering uh, colleagues in our tribe for 10,000 plus years, because it's a highly effective way to develop others. And no doubt our ancestors will have known that. We first have it captured in writing with the Greek philosopher Socrates, and in many other ancient societies, you speak to Maori, you speak to tribal groups in other parts of the world, and there's evidence that a reflective questioning style is part of their discourse. But my hope is that Coach Hub, as a digital coaching provider, can really transform organizational life and enable coaching to move from that elite group who were able to access it because it was very expensive, because it was very personalized, and enable it to cascade through the organization from the few to the many. Yes. To enable coaching to be available for many individuals to help them with their career progression, with their performance at work, and with their well-being. So coaching becomes part of organizational life because Coach Hub, through that democratization, through digital coaching, allows it to be more cost-effectively delivered. But I have a hope beyond that. Uh, Because I would like coaching to be part of every conversation, every opportunity that each child has in the way that they engage in their school environments. Every individual, whether they're a small entrepreneur in the Sudan, whether they're a woman working at home in India, a man uh, who is working on his car or working something else somewhere else in the world that all of them, or genders, or people, or nations, have the opportunity to be able to access coaching. And I think in the 2030s, we will see this emerge. 
alongside digital coaching platforms that will be an important part in organizational life, because I think there's something special about a human-to-human conversation. But our next step that I think that we will see that will be useful to us is the application of AI through our smartphones in bringing coaching to every single individual who has a smartphone. And my dream is that this can happen at a price point that's no more than maybe a dollar a month for that app for individuals to be able to access that, to have a coaching conversation that helps them to reflect and to plan. It won't be the only conversation because they can have that with their parent, with their friend, but it brings in the importance of listening. It helps individuals recognize the value of empathy. It encourages people to be hopeful and solution focused rather than to dwell on the past and the problem. And it individual helps individuals to set goals and to live towards their dreams rather than to dread their pasts. So articulate, Jonathan. So so beautiful. And as you recall, the wonderful Sir John Whitmore, his very famous book, which I think is still a bestseller called Coaching for Performance. However, what we've seen, particularly through COVID, is the openness and uh, willingness, particularly in organisations, for us to be talking about well-being as well as performance. So coaching for performance and well-being, which is, you know, music to my ears. But I think often my experience, people in many ways still think that coaching is rah-rah, you know, performance coaching. But from a positive psychological perspective, we know that out of all the variables that have been studied that impact on psychological well-being, without a doubt, positive relationships is the big one. And for me, coaching, which you've just spoken to then, really is about building positive relationships with people first and foremost. So hence, it has incredible implications for our society, really, isn't there? In in addition to helping people self-actualize, that's my hope too, I guess, coming back to some of Maslow's work, that we can help people really self-actualize. Absolutely right. Let's live for our dreams and be the best versions of ourselves. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Jonathan. There were so many more questions that I wanted to ask you. You're an absolute wealth of knowledge. You are highly collaborative. I love to see uh, those collaborations, which I've only just shared one book today, but there's many more and quite a number of them sit on my bookshelf. So thank you so much for your ongoing contribution to the field. I feel very honoured and privileged to have got to know you through the development of the field and our ongoing relationship through Coach Hub as well. So I would say uh, if you haven't read anything of Jonathan's, there's plenty to read and watch this space, particularly in the ongoing democratisation of coaching and the professionalisation of coaching psychology as a field. So thank you so much, Jonathan. Susie, thank you. It's been a delight talking to you today. Thank you so much for listening to Coach Plus, the art and science of positive psychology coaching. If you're new to the field, check out my two co-edited texts, Positive Psychology Coaching in Practice with Professor Stephen Palmer and Positive Psychology Coaching in the Workplace with Wendy Smith and Professor Alona Bonniewell. You might also like to check out our new Academy Plus and use the tab on our website, thepositivityinstitute.com.au, where you can learn more about positive psychology coaching with me. Don't forget to sign up for our free e-news when you're there, where you'll be kept in the loop for all things positive. Bye for now.